Welcome. I'm Paul Bishop, your host for this installment of Six Gun Justice Conversations. These are bonus downloads where my co-host Richard Prosh or I get to hang around the virtual Six Gun Justice podcast corral, talking with friends and fellow writers who are also fans of the Western genre. With me today are my two partners in crime, Bob Dice and Bill Cunningham. Bob is a curator of the information-packed men's adventure magazine blog found at menspulpmags.com and has one of the largest, if not the largest, collection of vintage men's adventure magazines, or MAMS for short, published during the 1950s to the 1970s. Along with Wyatt Doyle, he is the editor and publisher of the Men's Adventure Library, which is a series of books featuring pulp fiction stories and artwork from the classic men's adventure magazines. That series now includes more than a dozen lushly illustrated story anthologies and art books. Bill Cunningham is an art designer, layout genius, and the head honcho, or self-proclaimed mad pulp bastard, in charge of Pulp 2.0 Press. Bob and Bill have recently joined forces to launch the Men's Adventure Quarterly, a new magazine featuring themed collections of stories and artwork from the Men's Adventure magazines. The debut issue features a wonderful cover-to-cover collection of the best of the Western stories and illustrations from the MAMS. Hello, friends. Great to have you with me. Hello, Paul. Great to be here. This is Bob. This is Bill. Thanks for having us. So this is a big new venture for you guys. How are you feeling about it? I'm very excited to be able to work with Bill. I've been admiring his work on a number of things, and most significantly in terms of this new venture, some of the artwork and design he's done for Justin Marriott fanzines, which I love including Hot Lead, which you've contributed a lot to, Paul. It was actually those fanzines that got me started thinking about doing something similar for men's adventure magazines. So I talked to Bill about it. He liked the idea. But we both thought instead of just doing write-up on men's adventure magazines, we'd like to also show the artwork and reprint story. Because unlike the fanzines that Justin does for paperbacks, it's not easy for people to get men's adventure magazines, especially some of the rarer ones. And so by reprinting both the stories and artwork, we can give people a men's adventure magazine experience that they probably wouldn't otherwise have the opportunity to to have. And I think Bill did a great job on the layout for this first issue, and we're getting a lot of positive feedback. Thanks, Bill. Your check is in the mail, Bob. <laughs> Bill, you are very well-versed in the pulp genre. How well-versed were you in the men's adventure magazines before you started this project? I was mildly familiar with them. Of course, when I was a young kid, I'd seen them in my local barbershop, but I was never allowed to pick one up and read it. So it's been a great education working with Bob and reviewing the original magazines, researching how they looked, what their interests were, and everything else associated with them. It's been graduate school for this mad pulp bastard. With the pulps, there was a certain startling color to their covers. With the men's adventure magazines, there were these startling images on the covers. With the Men's Adventure Quarterly, Bill, you seem to have been able to combine both of those on the cover of the magazine, which is a glossy cover that's absolutely beautiful, but you've captured that red and yellow style from the pulps, if I'm not mistaken. I definitely wanted to add my own touch to what I saw was the Men's Adventure experience. 
I didn't want it to look exactly like what the MAMs were. I wanted it to be its own entity because we are doing more than simply echoing what was in the MAMs. We're also reviewing and picking apart what the MAM experience was and who the people were behind the MAM experience. We get into the personalities, we get into the look of those magazines, but we also add something of ourselves to it. The editorial content for the Men's Adventure Quarterly is fantastic, and I know a lot of that has come from Bob's knowledge of the MAMS. How difficult was it for you, Bob, to decide what to put in this issue? I had to narrow it down quite a bit. There are literally hundreds of Western stories in men's adventure magazines published in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s. So what I did was I made an initial list and then tried to pick some that represented each year during that phase when men's adventure magazines were being published so that we've got some from the 50s and the 60s and then even some from the early 70s. And what you said about the covers is important because really strong connections between the early classic pulp magazines, the men's adventure magazines that followed, and the whole realm of vintage paperbacks published in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And in fact, the publishers like Pyramid, who publish men's adventure magazines and, of course, lots of paperbacks, And Pyramid published Man's Magazine and Challenge, the magazine management Men's Adventure magazines published by Martin Goodman's company, created Timely, which became Marvel Comics. Their paperback imprint was Lion Books. McFadden, which started out publishing Pulps, also had both Men's Adventure magazines and paperbacks. The other connection that created was the fact that you've got some of the same artists who did covers for Pulps, doing covers for Men's Adventure magazines, also doing cover art for paperbacks like Frank McCarthy, Mort Kunstler, Raphael DeSoto, Bob Stanley, Norm Eastman, Will Halsey, Charles Copeland, Bob Scholes. A lot of those guys did both Men's Adventure magazines and paperbacks, and a number of the MAM artists started out doing pulps before the MAM genre coalesced in the early 50s. There was also writers, of course. Some of the writers who worked for MAMs also started in the pulps, but the ones we picked for this first issue definitely have a high profile in the vintage paperback, like Lou Cameron, Dean Ballinger, Jack Pearl. Don Honig, who is one of the few MAM writers who's still around, he's still alive and living in Florida, he wrote scores of stories for men's adventure magazines and over 50 different books, novels and nonfiction books. And of course, they all use Steve Holland to model for their covers. Steve Holland, the face that launched a thousand paperbacks. Absolutely. Thousands. And in men's adventure magazines, thousands more covers and interior illustrations. Now, he wasn't around for pre-World War II pulps, but our friend Michael Stradford is currently working on a book about Steve Holland, and he's talked to a number of artists who used him. I've talked to some artists who used him. Some of them are gone now, and he's putting together a book. It's a daunting task because literally, I would say thousands of paperbacks, thousands of Men's Adventure magazine issues. You'll even find in Men's Adventure magazines issues where Steve Holland appears on the cover and then on two or three different interior illustrations as the model, all by different artists. And in many cases, because they hired Steve by the hour, they would have him pose for two or three, four, sometimes even more figures that they painted in the scene. And you can actually tell it's Steve fighting Steve, Steve with his buddies and things like that. 
It's really interesting because between Steve Holland and Eva Lind, they really were the face of men's adventure magazines. Ava is still around. She's alive and well, and hopefully will be appearing at Pulp Fest in August. And I will be with her, and, and I co-editor on the Men's Adventure Library series. One of the books we did is about Ava Lind, and it features dozens of the Men's Adventure magazine cover and interior illustrations she modeled for. She didn't do as many as Steve Holland, but what she did do, she was also a pinup photo model. So in addition to seeing her in Men's Adventure magazine covers and interior artwork, you can find Ava in dozens, scores of pinup magazines published in the 50s and 60s. They call her the Countess of Pulpfest because her family does have royal connection. And in the old 50s magazines, they often called her the Countess. Bill, you and I both know the artwork on the pulp magazines back in the day was called the sizzle on the outside that sold the steak on the inside. How do you feel about the art on the men's adventure magazine covers? Do you feel that those were as necessary as the stories on the inside to get those stories into the hands of readers? Oh, absolutely. That's the hook that brings people in. You look at a cover on a ma'am and you immediately say to yourself, I want to read that story. What we've tried to do with Men's Adventure Quarterly is take some of the energy and momentum of the covers and bring it inside to the magazine as well. We've been reworking a lot of artwork, adding it to stories, and taking these wonderful illustrations and working them into a new type of magazine format that they haven't been in before. It's been very exciting from a design perspective, taking elements of different things and placing them just to enhance the story and make it not only a great fiction experience, but a great visual experience as well. Yeah, I think what you did, Bill, was, is very creative. For each of the stories that we feature, we show the actual cover of the issue was in, and we show the actual interior illustrations or photos that went with that story. But then Bill also recycles images from those and other covers and stories and uses them as background. He also created a really cool cover gallery by some of the greatest artists who work for MAMS, Western covers in this case. I don't know exactly how you do it, Bill. He took a lot of images and used them in the background of pages and just looks superb. Well, thank you. What is so interesting is it's not just the covers that are salacious enough to draw them in and make you say, I want to read that story. There was quite an art to creating the titles for those stories that were so outrageous that they would pull you in. It was an art in itself, yes. <laughs> Headline writing and subheads. Subheads were also important. And I've talked to a number of both writers and editors who are still alive when I started to become addicted to men's adventure magazines. And I can tell you that in most cases, it was the editors and the associate editors who picked the headlines and the subheads. I was talking to Don Honig recently about one of the stories in his first MAQ issue he wrote called Shootout at Mad Sadie's Place. And it's really cool. But he told me that was not the title he sent in. The subhead is also great for that one. It was a red silk saloon with a whale-sized madam and six killers from Texas in a town that didn't care. The perfect setting for the vengeance of Lucan's last fight. You almost don't have to read the story. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. But if you do, you'll be surprised because it's really good. 
Don told me a funny story about it, which is that Ernest Tidyman also wrote for Men's Adventure magazines in his early days, before he became famous for writing Shaft and then writing screenplays for Shaft and The French Connection. And he also wrote the screenplay for High Plains Drifter. Back in the 60s, Ernest Tidyman and Don Honey were both regular stringers for the magazine Management Mams, Stag, Four Men Only, Action for Men, Male, and <laughs> they knew each other. And if you read Shootout at Mad Sadie's Place, you find out it's about this guy who goes into a town to get revenge on some people for killing somebody he cared about. And he also takes revenge on people in the town who stood by when the person he cares about was killed by the bad guy. When High Plains Drifter came out, <laughs> Don told Ernest Tidyman, he said, hey, that reminds me of a story I wrote because that's what happens in High Plains Drifter. It's different, but Don is pretty sure that Ernest Tidyman noticed when that story was first published in the Four Men Only in June 1967 before Tidyman wrote the screenplay for High Plains Drifter. Wow, that's a spark of the imagination there that went from one writer to another. Let's not say a spark of larceny. Right. <laughs> that was a lot of cross-pollination. There was something interesting when you said, if you read the stories, you'll be surprised. That's one of the biggest knocks on the men's adventure magazines is they were looked at as lesser writings. The snobs who turned their nose up at the covers just figured there couldn't possibly be any good writing that goes on inside. And all three of us know differently. There's some terrific writing that goes on in these stories. That's true. And part of the misconception is because there are different tiers of men's adventure magazines. There's what I call the low-tier mags are the ones that you usually get referred to as sweat mags. And that's like Man's Book, A World of Men, published by Reese and MT. They were cheapo publications, but they had great cover art that gets a lot of attention because those are the ones that have the Nazis doing bad things to scantily clad women and so forth. There's a mid-tier level of MAMs that didn't have those kinds of covers. They had great cover art, but they were using cover art by some of the greatest artists around, like Mort Kunstler. And then there's the, the top-tier MAMs would be like True and Argosy. They had very broad distribution, and they could afford the top writers and illustrators that worked for the mainstream magazines. So what happens is, I think, on the Internet, the wildest and craziest sweat mag covers are the ones that tend to float around the most on the Internet. And there's this misconception that they represent the men's adventure magazines as a whole, but they don't because the mid-tier mags like Mail, Foreman Only, Stag, and the top-tier mags like True and Argosy, they didn't have those kinds of bondage and torture covers. They had some stories that featured B&T and so forth, but it wasn't like the sweat mags. And they could also afford to hire some really good writers. Many wrote paperback novels. In fact, the other thing that MAMS did was they would reprint book bonus versions of paperback novels. And most of the mid-tier and top-tier mags had book bonus stories in every issue by great writers. I would just say there is a tremendous amount of cross-pollinization, not only the artists working in the MAMS, also in the paperbacks and other magazines and advertising even. But also the writers were working in the MAMs. They were working crafting paperbacks. There's a good chance if there's a Western writer that you like in a paperback novel from the 60s and 70s, then he probably also worked in the MAMs or in the Digest mags at the time. There's not any sort of tier system. They're all markets where Western writers could sell their works. 
I know Luke Cameron went on to create the long arm series of Western paperbacks and numerous other Western series that went on for years and years after the MAMs had disappeared from the newsstand. So Lou and some of the others, Jack Pearl, continued to work in the paperback field. And I've always looked at the MAMs as the connecting bridge between the pulps and the paperback originals. Yeah, we should mention you wrote a great introduction for this issue and helped connect the dots between Western stories in men's adventure magazines and the adult Western genre of men's adventure paperbacks. And of course, as you said, Lou Cameron was one of the grand masters of the adult Western. We put one of his stories in this issue. It's called Say No to Lori Lee and Wish You Were Dead. <laughs> Another... <laughs> Another title you'd really have a hard time coming up with, but it's really, it's, it's a great story. And it verges on what would become adult westerns. Men's Adventure magazines weren't that explicit. They were more suggestive. But you read the story by Lou Cameron in this issue of the Men's Adventure Quarterly, and you'll definitely see the DNA that went on to become the adult western genre. It was interesting with the adult westerns, the editors really didn't care what else you wrote story-wise as long as you got in their designated number of sex scenes. It may be <laughs> two per book, three per book, or whatever it was, but then you have a character like Longarm, and the series runs for 300, 400 books, and he gets laid at least twice a book. How does that all add up? Or are you putting up Wilt Chamberlain numbers there? <laughs> He's got to have some deputies running around after all that adult activity. <laughs> I'd be exhausted. I couldn't go out and enforce the law after that. Come on. Do you know if Harry Whittington did any stories for the MAMs? Not off the top of my head, I don't. Interesting, because he was so prolific at the time. I haven't quite figured out why some writers who were active in paperbacks in the 50s and 60s had both original stories in men's adventure magazines and others didn't. I don't know if some were hungrier than others or not. Some great writers started out working for MAMS, like Mario Puzo, who worked for the magazine management, Men's Adventure Magazine, wrote scores of stories under the pseudonym Mario Clary before he became famous for The Godfather and many other examples like that. Some who wrote under pseudonyms, some who didn't. But then there's others who are missing, and I can't tell you why. Some were and some weren't in the Men's Adventure Magazine. You and I are aware John Whitlatch, who wrote a series of novels that had some wonderful covers on them that were the equal of the men's adventure magazines, only in paperback form. And two, I believe, or possibly three of his novels were condensed down into books for the MAMs. Yeah, it was three. You actually know more about him than anybody, I think. And the posts you've done about him on your blog and your podcast, that's what got me interested in him. And I think he'll show up in a future Men's Adventure Quarterly. That's terrific news. I really want to do a little bit more research and track down if his books have fallen out of copyright, which I believe they have, because I would love to reprint them again. Ah, cool. <laughs> I'd love to do the covers. That would be a hard job to match what was on him originally, but it would be a terrific challenge. And speaking of that, looking at the Men's Adventure Quarterly and paging through it, I see that there was a real challenge for you, Bill, to get the balance of all the illustrations that are packed into this page after page. How much did you struggle with? 
It was interesting, which is a word and a half word. We went back and forth in a couple of editorial meetings on how things should be presented, what side of the page they should be on and that sort of thing. But Bob, thankfully, left me to my own devices in many cases and allowed me the freedom to experiment a bit and to move things around and see how it would look. And I would take his feedback on board and we would both edit with an eye towards clarity's sake in terms of what's the best reading and visual experience for our audience. The other thing Bill contributed, the synergy between us has been great. And when we were brainstorming, we started thinking about what other regular features could we put in a magazine that comes out quarterly. And of course, aside from the stories and artwork, one of the things you find in any men's adventure magazine is a cheesecake photo spread, or maybe more in many cases. Bill had the idea of having a regular MAQ gallery, which I thought was pretty clever. And he created a great spread with a bio of Julie Redding, who was also a pinup photo model, but she did some acting, including in some, some cult movies. You know more about her than I do, Bill. She was one of those actresses in the 60s that appeared on The Big Valley and Burke's Law and Branded and Sea Hunt, 77 Sunset Strip. And she would do these guest roles and she parlayed some of that into an independent movie career and more pinup appearances. She was a beauty queen who was often asked to open up county fairs and other convention events and things like that very interesting lady very focused on her career and if she was an echo of the studio system of developing a talent under an umbrella and sending that person out we need a blonde that will be in this certain role on this certain tv show at this certain time so she was part of that whole studio system of stock players and whatnot and she actually became a name yeah, and the photos we show of her, what we decided to do with the MAQ gallery, not the art gallery, but the gal as a woman gallery, is show both original photo spread from a men's adventure magazine. And then Bill picked some other covers that she appeared on and some other photos from other magazines she was in. It's going to be really cool. One of the things you'll see, this is not Playboy. And unlike Playboy, which had topless photos and then full frontal nudity, nudity starting in the 60s, even in the 50s they had topless. But adventure magazines were not quite that racy. Their pinup photos, cheesecake photos, or glamour girl photos, the women up until the late 60s were not new in most cases. But the photos are actually damn good and alluring. And taken by a lot of the top glamour girl photographers of the time who also took photos of movie stars, women who were models for fashion magazines and so forth. Tastefully presented, as we say. Yeah. When you put out a quarterly magazine, it becomes a voracious beast. So I know that after you publish this one, you immediately had to kick over into what your next issue would be. So what is the Men's Adventure Quarterly number two going to take a look at? We are turning our eye towards men's adventure magazines and the world of Cold War espionage. It's the James Bond era, basically. And in fact, we're going to have a section about James Bond in Men's Adventure magazines in it. Because of that whole James Bond mania, there were a lot of Cold War spy stories in Men's Adventure magazines. 
There were also lots of spy stories dealing with World War II and the OS and so forth, but we decided for this next issue to focus on 60s James Bond-style spy stories and artwork. That sounds great, and I will be first in line for a copy. Guys, thank you for being with me today. I really appreciate your time. You've done a fantastic job on this first issue of the Men's Adventure Quarterly. It's available on Amazon. I am looking forward to issue number two. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. Greatly appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the Six Gun Justice website at sixgunjustice.com for information on prior Six Gun Justice conversations, Six Gun Justice speed listens, and full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, along with regularly updated book reviews, articles, and interviews covering all aspects of the Western genre. Until next time, be kind to yourself, be kind to others, and keep your masks up. Adios. We're out of here. Let's ride.